54, the, the age of steam locomotives came to, you might say, a roaring end. After that time, except in unusual circumstances, steam locomotives were not seen on the railroads in America. I remember when I was a little boy, and I was nine years old at the time in 1954, that I would go down to the railroad tracks, which was one of my favorite places to go. And we'd go up and we'd put the pennies on the track. I don't know if some of you, you young people remember doing that, maybe my age. And you wait for the train to go by, and that penny would just be like paper thin. But you'd run all the way back as far as you could get from that track because that train would make the ground shake. It was an intimidating sight to have one of those massive steam engines. In those days, they were much bigger than the ones in, that we see in the movies. And they would just roar and shake and blow smoke all over the place. And, you know, they'd be an environmentalist nightmare. But nevertheless, they were certainly a sight to see. And I can recall when I was in the car with my mom and I wasn't always sure just what she's liable to pull. We'd pull up to the, the, the uh, railroad tracks, and I wanted to make sure that she stopped. There was no crossing gates in those days because those things scared me. And when the lights would be blinking and, and there would be the little sign, I would make sure that she stood back or that she, she stopped the car. I said, Mom, put it in parking. She put her foot on the brake, and I think, you know, she slips off the brake or something, we're dead meat. And I'd say, put it in park. Don't get too close. Finally, the train would pass, and you could feel it even through the car, the rumble of that thing and how it would shake the car. It was an intimidating sight. In those days, there weren't any crossing gates. We lived out in the country, sort of to speak, at that time, and all there was was this one little sign like this with the two lights. And that little blinking sign with the two lights became associated with railroad crossings around the country. And the sign reads, stop, look, and listen. In the day of the steam train, it was a warning sign that only the foolish ignored, and oftentimes to their own peril. We had a, a young man in the neighborhood that was killed because he tried to beat one across the tracks. They couldn't even find the remains of the car. I mean, you know, when the Amtrak here hits a car, at least you got something that you can carry off to the junkyard. But when one of those steam trains with all of its massive weight would hit, it just would, there wouldn't be anything left of him or the car. He didn't make it across the track trying to beat a speeding locomotive. When it comes to the Word of God, this is the kind of attitude that should characterize a child of God. Wherever the Word of God is passing before us, we should pay attention to the sign that says, in effect, stop, look. And listen. Immediately when the Word of God passes before us, we need to set the parking brake 
in our busy lives. We need to look at what He is or what He is doing and listen attentively to what He is saying. And if we do not heed the warning and we race through life, seldom stopping to carefully consider the truth of God, we do it to our own peril. Death and destruction may hit us like a speeding locomotive. This is a major theme in the last book of the Bible, especially in regard to God's children. Above all else, the book of Revelation is a revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, in effect, lifts the veil, and we see him as the awesome warrior who is coming to execute God's justice and deliver God's people that he is. The book of Revelation is also a book that transports blessing, encouragement, and assurance to the children of God. But it is also a book loaded heavily, loaded heavily with the truth about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A book full of fearful images and unforgettable sights that rumble past anyone who is within hearing range or seeing range. When it comes to the book of Revelation, there's only one appropriate response, and that is to stop and to look and to listen. I'd like you to join with me in stopping this morning for just a moment, looking and listening to the book of Revelation as it continues to pass by. We've been working our way through the first chapter over the last couple, three weeks. And today we want to consider Revelation chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which lead right into chapters 2 and 3. However, I want to begin with verses 9 to 18 or 17, which provide the backdrop for verses 19 and 20. And I'm going to read them to you again with some added explanation, just so they give us the backdrop we need. Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is, the Holy Spirit had miraculously transported him into the future, into a time the Bible called the day of the Lord. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That is, I was here when it all began and I will be here when it ends. I was the first word and I will have the last word. And therefore, John, I am telling you what you see right in a book. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now catch the picture here. John, write. Write in a book on a scroll in his day. And send it to the seven churches. 
That's where the book of Revelation was headed. And of course, those seven churches, as we discussed last week, are representative of all churches. They're very, they're varied. Their names are significant because they provide a picture of the variety and the, the variation that you find in the church of Jesus Christ today. Some of it not very pleasing to look at. At other times, some of the churches are remarkable in what they were accomplishing. Now, if I have that map up there on the, uh, there it is. You'll see over here, just to the left, you can see Ephesus sort of in the middle of the picture. And then right to the left there, out in the sea, the Aegean Sea, you'll see Patmos. That's where John was writing from. And then you can see the churches of the book of Revelation sort of make an arch from Ephesus up to Smyrna and then Pergamon, then come back down, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so it forms this, this arch, and it's sort of like a cropping of churches. But there were other cities with churches. These were obviously handpicked by our Lord Jesus Christ because they had some significance. First of all, I think they were significant in that they gave a, a wide perspective on the church. There are many different kinds of local churches that bear the name of Christ. And wherever people believe in Him and they've met together, our Lord Jesus Christ is there in their midst. And that takes us on to the next portion here, verse 12 of chapter 1. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, instead of seeing at first who it was who spoke... I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about with a chest, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, high noon. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. The sight was so awesome to John. It put him on his face. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm in control of all things. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Announcing clearly that this is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again. He continues, and I have the keys of Hades and death, meaning that though you may die, because you believe in me, you will rise again. And now here are the verses that we want to give extra attention to this morning. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And we have four, three things here to look at this morning that I want to focus on. First of all, very briefly, the voice. Second, the lampstands. Third, the stars. Let's take a look. The voice which John heard was the voice of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, dressed as a warrior coming to execute justice and deliver his people. Then we are introduced to two mysterious sacred symbols which John saw. Now you'll notice in the book of Revelation, people get all upset because it has so many symbols. But normally if a symbol is intended to be a symbol, it will say so. A lot of times, symbols aren't symbols. They're real. And people make them symbols, but there's nothing in the Bible, nothing in the book of Revelation that says it should be made a symbol. For instance, it says that Christ shall reign for a thousand years, and during that time, Satan will be bound, and then he will be loosed. Many people take that as a symbol, as a figure of speech. But there's nowhere in the passage that it says, take that as a figure of speech. Then we should take it literally. But here Jesus is making clear that The lampstands and the stars are symbols. What are they symbols of? The seven golden lampstands with the Son of Man in their midst and the seven stars which John saw in his hand, right hand. What do they represent? What do they signify? What do we learn from them? Let's take them in the order in which they appear in the text and also from my standpoint in the order of difficulty we'll save the toughest to last. First, let's take the seven golden lampstands, which John saw. He says these are the seven churches. But what startled him almost as much as the symbol as itself was the presence of the Son of Man in the midst of the seven churches, in the midst of the lampstands. And you'll notice the next picture here. I've tried to illustrate it, but with Christ on the the cross being a symbol of Christ, you have... Basically, in his imagery, he's seeing these lampstands representing these seven churches, but in the midst of it is Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of the, the term the Son of Man, as we saw last week, is a messianic term from the book of Daniel, which speaks of Messiah's presence with his people to deliver them from tribulation and troubles. So obviously here, when you see Jesus as the Son of Man in the midst of the churches... He's there to deliver them from their distresses and their troubles. He's there in the midst of them to help them with their temptations. Clearly, the evil around them or the sin at work within them has made all but one of them dysfunctional. You have seven churches. Five are very dysfunctional. One is somewhat dysfunctional because of the pressures from the outside bearing upon it. And there's only one that is not dysfunctional. And we're going to consider each of these churches, these dysfunctional and functional churches, in future meetings and future messages together. But today I want to focus on how a church is supposed to function. If we understand how it's supposed to function, then we can see what makes a church dysfunctional. We might logically ask, how were these churches supposed to function if they are, in some cases, dysfunctional? 
The symbol to which they were likened gives the answer. They were to function like a lampstand. That is how any church is supposed to function, like a lampstand. That's the the fundamental, overarching idea behind having a church. It's a lampstand. So what is a lampstand? Now, there's no trick here, and this is a no-brainer. What is a lampstand? It's a stand on which you put a lamp. It's not the lamp. It's not the light. It's the stand for the light. A local church is not a lamp. It's not a light. It is a stand for the light. A stand to support and hold up the light so that those who are in the church and those who are within the reach of the church beyond it can see and function as they should. What is the light that is held up? Very simply, it's the light of Jesus Christ. He's the one that said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. So how is the Lord Jesus Christ held up before his people and the world about them? It is a light. I mean, he's in heaven. While he was on earth, he said, I am the light of the world. He's moved to, he's seated right now in his human form as the Son of Man at the right hand of God in heaven. Now the question is, how is his light going to come to this world through this church? And the answer to that is it's going to be refracted. Refracted light is light that comes as a beam, hits a prism or some type of surface, perhaps mirrors or whatever, And then that light is refracted out to the world around it. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the light. He's the source of the light, but His light then is refracted as it comes through us, through His Word, to us, passes through us as individuals, through our lives and through our words, out into the world around us. Now, Jesus anticipated this very thing when he said to his disciples and those who followed him. And this is interesting because he said he's the light of the world. But then in Matthew 5, he said this. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Who is the light of the world? In a real sense, both are. The light of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's the source of the light, but His light is passing through us. So in a sense, we also are the light of the world. As we hold up His Word and live in ways that speak of Him and reveal His life within us. But if this is going to happen like it's supposed to happen, we need to be supported and held up so that the light passing through us can reach out to those around us. We need a lampstand. And that is what the church is all about. About supporting those of us, trust all of us want to be part of the the light-bearing source that God would have us be. But the church is to support us as we 
refract the light of Jesus Christ. The church is about holding people up so that people stumbling about in the darkness can see the light of their lives and hear the words that they speak and be drawn to the Father. The Apostle Paul emphasized this idea when he said this to Timothy. He was concerned about the fact that he couldn't make it to Ephesus to be with Timothy. And he said, I'm writing to you that you might know how to conduct yourself in the church, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Clearly, Timothy's conduct and the conduct of the church as individuals was linked to the church's purpose to be a pillar and ground of the truth. That's because the church was to lift them up. How can a church function as a lampstand? Well, by proclaiming the truth of God, by supporting those who are striving to conduct their lives that reveal the person and word of our Lord Jesus Christ, by working together to create a church climate that is marked by grace and truth and by the very character of Jesus Christ himself, by getting behind those who want to lead or start ministries that are designed to strengthen and build up the body of Christ, the church? How can we do that? One thing is what we're doing right now by attending church that faithfully, a church that faithfully preaches and teaches the Word of God. And by hearing and responding to the Word that is being taught, it's not just enough to sit there and take it in, but to act on what we hear. But it also involves another thing, by exposing ourselves to as much of the Word as we are able to hear and digest. Sunday school, Awana, Bible studies, discipleship groups, theology studies, these are all wonderful things. But we need to translate this all into our life. We can't just be constantly taking in. We need to be taking that light that's coming to us and transferring it out in our conduct, in our words, so the people around us can see it. What are some ways we might do that? Well, by supporting and encouraging as a church, conduct becoming of our Savior. One of the problems that, that we have, and this is a familiar a saying, familiarity breeds contempt, is the more that we are together and function together, it, the easier it is to let down our, our guard, if you will. And I'm very guilty of that. And just sort of letting everything hang out. But what hangs out is not the kind of thing that's going to pass on the light of Jesus Christ. But there are other little things we can do. I was pick, picked up the USA Today this, this, this week. And here's something that interesting because somebody, a couple people have asked me about this, if this is a still appropriate. But it said, whatever happened to thank you notes? In an age of multitasking and email manners, often... Thank you notes take a holiday. Remember a pastor asked me, do I need to write a thank you note? I said, yeah, it's a good idea. He says, yeah, my wife tells me that. You know what a thank you note does when you send out a thank you note? It shows that you're grateful. That you're full of grace. Gratitude is so becoming a believer of Jesus Christ. 
That's light passing through us and it's passing on and it's saying to others, I'm a grateful person. I'm a thankful person. We need to work at worship and praise. I, I confess I don't know a lot of the songs that, that seem to be coming on all the time. New songs are being added to the list of contemporary songs that we sing. And I don't know them, but I need to work at learning those. And so I sit there and I'm trying to sing through them and get used to them. Because if I lift my voice in praise as best I can, and you lift your voice in praise the best I can, then this church is basically being used to support individuals who are passing the light on to others. How about lending a listening ear to someone crying out to be noticed and valued? So often we're so much in a, in a hurry, we have no time for anybody. And you can sense that somebody wants to talk. Do we give them the time of day? Jesus would. Especially if they wanted to talk to him about things dear to their heart because they believed he could help. I think of the women that, that were prayed for earlier by Scott as he was praying. Thought, you know, that's a perfect illustration. We've got a number of people that are shut in along with one man. You know what it does when you go over there and visit with him? It makes their day. They're confined. When we do that, the light of Jesus is passing through us and hitting them because we're showing the kind of concern and love that he has for people with no thought of return. I mean, they can't pay us back. What about opening our home up? What about showing hospitality? Jesus always seemed to be going to somebody's home for dinner. My kind of guy. Shouldn't we be people that are open that way? Both ways. When people ask us to come over, we should say, sure, I'd love to come. Not be intimidated or afraid. And we should think about having others over, and particularly people that we don't know as well. People that aren't part of our inner circle. Jesus is always reaching out and bringing in new people. It's all part of letting the light pass through us to others. And it's saying in very loud terms, we want to bear the light of Jesus Christ and the church needs to support us. Also, by getting out of our comfort zone and helping others who have needs that we might meet. Neil and I have been talking about a church-wide caring ministry in some way, reaching out to the community and being able to, to go and deal with, with the community in some way that we could show that we love people, that we care about them. We might be visiting elderly people in neighborhoods that we're all a part of, and maybe a group of us would go to their home and do something for them, uh, several things that they maybe couldn't do themselves, wash their windows, wash their car, things of that nature. But it sends a message to them, to neighbors, that we really care. My wife's been doing a lot with a, a lady next door. And I, my flesh tells me she's 95, her name's Morris, a wonderful lady, but she's not a believer and not interested. But my wife is just faithful and goes over and takes care of her, does things for her. And, you know, my flesh says, well, why give her the time of day? You know, she's interested. Move on to the next one, you know. That isn't the way Jesus thinks. Get it, Arch? She's being a light. 
And I heard somebody told me last week that they got a word to us that they thought we were such great neighbors. I thought, yeah, my wife. (laughs) How can we be vehicles through which Conduits, if you will, through which the light of Jesus passes on to others. And how as a church can we support them? You be the illustrator. The illustrations are endless. Every local church of our Lord Jesus Christ where believers have assembled together, regardless of their name, is to be a lampstand proclaiming the truth and holding up each other as together they refract the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world and so are we. Not because we have light within us, but because we are being born again, we have His life and therefore we're able to receive His light and refract it out to the world about us. Such a lampstand is so valuable to our Lord Jesus Christ that it is pictured in Revelation as a golden lampstand. Why do these lampstands, why were they gold? Because it highlighted the value the importance of these lampstands to Jesus Christ who stands in their midst. The point's obvious. Every church is of great value to Jesus Christ. Every local church where there are believers present. After all, He bought and paid for all the church with His own blood. Furthermore, He has designed every local church to provide a very important service in the outworking of His plan for the day in which we live. And that is, He commanded us to join together in local settings, like this setting, to be lampstands, casting out our light over a church, our church and beyond. You know, our Lord could have taken us to heaven the moment we believe. Often I wonder, why didn't He do that? Sure spare a lot of misery. But He left us here instead for a very specific purpose for our time here on this earth that we might come together in a local church and together serve as a lampstand supporting and holding up every individual believer as a conduit of the light of Jesus Christ. The gold around the lampstand says, in effect, every local church is important to our Lord Jesus Christ. But is the local church important to us? In our throwaway society, people throw away churches like they're worthless. To us, a church is nothing more like than a car. You drive it for a while, you get tired of it, you throw it away. Others claim, I don't want anything to do with institutional religion. You mean religion that might ask something of you? Where you might be accountable to someone else? Even just to see your face and say hello? I always want to be my own person, be free, do my thing. That's the spirit of our day. It doesn't give any thought to the way the Lord thinks because He left us here that we might come together. And if the local church isn't a part of our life, we're not in the will of God, period. And don't anyone tell me that you can be in the will of God and not be a part of a local church. It doesn't have to be this, but we need to be part of a local church. If we're in step with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will value His church. He even values the church of Laodicea, and you know how bad that was. In fact, so valuable is every church to him, and so important is its function of serving as a lampstand that when the church fails as a lampstand, 
when it fails in its function to be what he intended, as the church of Laodicea did, obviously, then our Lord becomes very aggressive. This isn't the little Lord Jesus that we think of who's about to talk to his churches. He's getting right down and getting aggressive and going right for the juggler of each church. Pointing out to them what he likes and he's pointing out to them what he doesn't like. And you better do something about what you don't like, what he doesn't like, because if you don't do something about it, he's going to take action against you. And your lampstand may not be around anymore. It's like a parent with a child. When my children disobeyed, I took them in hand and I dealt with them. I chastened them because they're my children. That's what Jesus is doing with his church. We may think he's speaking harshly to the church, but they're like his children. He cares for them dearly and he is therefore taking them in hand and he's spanking them and explaining to them why he has to discipline them unless they change their behavior. It's exactly what we see with five out of the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation is sent. That is why John is told not only to write about what he had just seen, that's the vision of Jesus the warrior, verses 9 to 18. He's also told to write about the things which are about to come after the church age. But he's also told to write about the things which are. That is, he's about to write, he's about to write about the things that involve the church at the very moment that he was writing. And here are seven churches that he knew of, that he'd been a part of, that Jesus knew very well, that Jesus had singled out as representative of all churches and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write to these seven churches. John was to write about the things which are about the seven churches just highlighted, about how well they are doing as the lampstands the Lord intended them to be. That is what chapters 2 and 3 are all about. However, before we can move on to those chapters, our Lord wants us to understand one more mysterious symbol, the symbolism of the stars. Of the stars. The seven stars which you saw, Jesus says, in my right hand are the seven angels, are the angels, I should say, of the seven churches. The seven stars which you saw in my right hand are, are the angels of the seven churches. <laughs> That's a little tough. What's this all about, Lord? I mean, since when do we have angels here? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Come again? This has been a very difficult week for me. One of my weaknesses as a pastor, but also one of my strong points, and like most of us, but we, our strengths can also be our weaknesses, is that I believe before I can stand up and preach to you, I've got to be absolutely convinced that there, everything in the passage I can at least answer to my own satisfaction. I may not satisfy you, but I need to be satisfied. Well, I couldn't figure out anything about what in the world he's talking about here. And I've wrestled with this passage before. Couldn't figure out anything then either. Otherwise, if I can't figure it out, I don't want to preach it. I don't want to teach it. In my mind, there's little value in standing up here and saying, well, 
The seven stars which Jesus says you saw in my right hand are the, are the angels of the seven churches. Here are four views. You choose which one you'd like. If I can't make up my mind, I imagine you're going to have trouble making up your mind. And so I just sat there and I said, Lord, we've got to come to an answer here. I cannot step into the pulpit. So I've been frustrated with this all week. And the problem is, is that every commentator says the same thing. Here are the four views. Basically, there are two views, and there's a couple variations on the two views. Here are the four views. This one seems like it might possibly be okay, but we're not sure. Boom. End of discussion. What are the... We're not going to go into all four views. Let me just give you the two basic views, which the other two views stream from. View one is that the term angel does have a root meaning of messenger. And therefore, some say these are not angels per se, spirit beings that we think of as angels. But they're the pastors of the seven churches. In other words, the seven stars are the pastors of the seven churches. Well, that makes good sense in the context. I like that. That works real well. And particularly if you're a Baptist, it's great. Because, you know, the pastor is the the top dog. The problem is, is that the angels are mentioned, angels are mentioned 250 times in the Bible. Do you know how many times they're mentioned in the book of Revelation? 116 times. In the one book of Revelation... Now, granted, let's say 16 of those times are in in chapter 2 and 3, and if those mean pastors, that means a 100 times in the book of Revelation, they refer to angels, clearly. Spirit being sent by God to do this, do that, whatever. Ministering for Him. The problem is, it sounds great to make them pastors, and it seems to fit the context, but it just doesn't work out scripturally. He's not talking about a human messenger here, a pastor type of person. So let's go to view two. View two is that the term angels does refer to angels who are viewed as messengers to the churches. The problem with this view is it doesn't fit the circumstances. Read correctly with regard to the grammar, you end up with the angel of each church to whom John is told to write, actually being rebuked on behalf of the church. In other words, all this rebuke, if you read the grammar and the the context carefully, the rebuke is to the angel. Well, the angel, if if, if he's there, he was told by God to do what? Why is he getting the blame? Obviously, the church is supposed to take something from this, but it seems like it's all going in the direction of the angel. It's like he didn't do his job right. Bad angel. Well, if he's a bad angel, he'd be with Satan and confined to the lower parts of the earth. Obviously, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this statement. Most people just love to say, look, don't sweat the small stuff. Get on with it. It's obvious that whatever's said here goes to the church originally, eventually. Skip the angel, talk about the church. The warning is to the church. The angel just got it by mistake, I guess. To open this up for us, I would like to begin with a question. Where were most of these churches failing to be the lampstand they were called to be? 
Why were they failing to support or hold up believers devoted to being channels through which the Lord beamed out His light? May I suggest to you that without taking you through all the passages yet, that the problem, one of the major problems of why these churches were failing and dropping the ball, just as most churches do, is that these churches were involved in what you might call intense warfare with the world, with the flesh, and yes, with the devil. We live in an enlightened society, and so we make fun of things like the devil and demonic activity and spiritual warfare. These things are just sort of fun, you know. We live here in California. Everything's placid and wonderful, and nobody even knows there's a war going on. But believe me, right here in this very presence, I believe there is a spiritual war going on. In the Bible, it's no laughing matter. Consider this graphic description by the Apostle Paul. He says, finally, in Ephesians 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand. We need to put on the whole armor of God, but we also need to recognize that we are not engaged in this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare alone. There are unseen spiritual powers called angels, principalities, that are at work on our behalf as well. The stars which John saw in the right hand of Jesus, stars are also reflectors of light. These are angels, yes. Specifically, angels of the seven churches, yes. Now that may seem like a stretch. Well, think about this. Are angels involved in our life, in your life, and in my life? I'm not talking in an unbiblical sense of the fantasy stuff and the perversions you get out of Hollywood. You think about all these angel movies and it's a joke. But we're talking about the real deal here. Real angels involved in your life and my life. Not girl angels or boy angels, but angels. I remember Elijah. He said, an angel touched me. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. Okay. We go over to the book of Acts. Peter, angel comes, wakes him up, says, we're leaving jail. Follow me. Takes him out. Peter says, I think I've had a dream. He says, no, you haven't had a dream. He wakes up and realizes it's for real. In Acts 8, Philip, an angel taps him on the shoulder and says, go talk to this guy from Ethiopia. Oh, that's the early church and the apostles. That's right. That's not real for us. Listen to the words of Jesus. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, children. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Hebrews 1.7 and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Every one of us has angels involved. The Bible says that the angels are innumerable. You can't count them all, so to speak. God obviously can. But they're innumerable. And they're involved in our life. They're involved in our children's life. They're involved... In ways that we cannot begin to understand. And friends, they're involved in the church. Now, if angels are far more involved in our personal lives 
then we realize it's not too much of a stretch to accept what the Bible says, that angels are involved in a church, and in specific local churches, to be specific. In fact, it seems clear from these statements in Revelation that specific angels have been directed by our Lord Jesus Christ to identify with specific local churches and become involved in the spiritual warfare that could hamper them from being the lampstand they're supposed to be. In other words, we want to hold up people who will refract the light of Jesus Christ in wonderful ways. And Satan and his demonic hordes are doing everything they can to, behind the scenes, we can't even see what's going on to discourage that, to frustrate that. And we're to be assured that God has appointed an angel and perhaps other angels underneath that angel to work in the spiritual battles that we are facing behind the scenes in ways that we cannot begin to appreciate as human beings. To fight and to, to check the uh, spiritual warfare going on around us. Now this is all nice to know, isn't it? But since these angels directly serve the Lord Jesus Christ and do what he tells them to do per- perfectly, there's no disobedience on their part. And since in the normal course of life, we have no visible contact with them, what's the point of injecting them into this final exhortation to the seven churches representing all churches at the end of the New Testament. In other words, what do these angels have to do with the message, which is ultimately to each church? You can't read the the letters to the seven churches and realize, not realize, these, these messages to the church. What have the angels got to do with it? That's the big question. We get started late today, so if you permit me to finish this, I'd appreciate it. It's like an illustration in one of my messages, and I'll sometimes have an illustration. I'll say, why did I say that? It doesn't fit. It's like injecting angels into the picture here just doesn't seem to fit. To find an answer, we need to turn over to chapter 2 and 3. And let's just begin with a few verses of chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which illustrate what we are considering. Now, notice how it begins. Jesus is speaking, and he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, John, write this. To the angel, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have... Perseveres and persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. He's telling that to the angel. The angel who's assigned to identify, to be identified and involved with the church at Ephesus. John is told to write these things. The angel's the first one to hear this. He hears the praise and then he hears the bad, the bad news, the good news and the bad news approach. Again, why didn't our Lord just get with it and say to the church directly, the church at Ephesus, you, the church at Ephesus, you did some things right, you've done some things wrong. I think he should have began to the church at Ephesus, write these things. What's this angel got to do with it? The reason is, if you want to say something that people will really listen to, triangulate the conversation. I was talking with somebody this week and he used this word and I said, that's the, that's the key. We'll mention who that is. 
She knows who she is. Triangulate the conversation. That's an appropriate use of the word, if, if that's an appropriate use of the word. It really does fit. It sounds like somebody with sort of a math mind to come up with this idea. But the idea is this. When two people are talking back and forth about something, they will obviously draw others into the conversation. In this case, the situation was negative. On the positive side, I've used this technique with my, my, my family, with parents. I know I'm, I'm older now, and I'll just give this advice to my kids. If you want to talk and tell your parents something confrontational, or if you want to teach them some spiritual truth, as in the case that I wanted to teach my parents things that I was learning, you can't go to your parents and say, um, Mom and Dad, you've got it all wrong on this particular point here. This is the right theology. Mom and Dad, that, don't, that doesn't work with Mom and Dad because Mom and Dad are your parents. And they don't want to be thought of as wrong or that they get raised you wrong or whatever. So how do you do it if you're going to pull it off with your parents? And this is some good advice. And that is you talk to your parents about a conversation or a discussion you had with someone else. You're having this imaginary discussion with somebody else. They're listening in. You're not confronting them. You're talking about some of the argument you were having with this other person. They're buying, they're, they're seeing how you're reasoning and they're saying, I see that. I'm going to mark that down as my own. It worked. I would be surprised how I would leave. I'd have one of those imaginary conversations, tell them things that I had learned, uh, that I was discussing with somebody in church, which are real. I didn't make things up. And then, the next time I'd be home, they'd act as if they already had these things down. They were, these was their, this was their, their idea. They believe this. Great. Move on. You've accomplished what you want to accomplish. It's still, you've still protected their honor and respected them as parents. The idea is, is that when people triangulate the conversation, you've got, in this case, an imaginary conversation, they're listening very attentively. You're accomplishing something positive, obviously. Now, the most important thing that we need to keep in mind here is when you triangulate a conversation, it is the most effective way to get someone to hear what you have to say. Let me give you an illustration. If a supervisor at work, you're working, and you get a memo across your computer, an email memo, and it's from the supervisor to the boss, and it just happened to bypass your computer, the supervisor is telling your boss how great of a job you've been doing except for the fact that your office is a pig pen. Now, first of all, when you see that that email is from your boss or from your supervisor to your boss and it's about you, would you read it? You better believe you'd read it. You'd read it attentively. And would you clean up your office? If you're smart, you would. You'd realize that might be the one thing that stands in the way of you getting a promotion. If you were talking to your doctor, or heard your doctor, let's say, talking to a specialist about your condition, would you listen to what they were saying? Yeah, you would. If your teacher was talking to your parents, some of you that are students, if your teacher was talking to your parents 
in a conference, and it's a three-way conference, would you listen to what the teacher was saying to your parents? This is where you would be privileged to listen? You sure you would. It would hold your interest. But if your parent turned to you and said, you ought to do this or you ought to do that, or your teacher said you ought to do this or you do that, it wouldn't make as much of an impact. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing in chapters 2 or 3, I believe. He is evaluating each church's performance with a powerful being he is told to identify and become involved with the church. He's not blaming the being, but he's telling the being, the angel, if you will. He's saying, can you believe it? This is what your church, the one you're representing, is doing. Good. But notice what they aren't doing. Good. But Jesus, instead of sending an inner office memo that was sort of haphazardly turned up on your computer, he's sending this out, broadcasting it so that the church doesn't get it by accident. They get it directly. This is a memo they were expected to intercept and take to heart or else. In other words, I believe what's happening here is that by giving this to the angel, the church realizes how important it is to listen to what's being said. How important it is because you have heavenly powers. The Lord Jesus Christ talking to a superior angel who is superior in knowledge and strength, who is involved in spiritual warfare protecting this church. They're having a conversation about the church's failure in terms of dropping the ball as well as their successes. That's what I think is going on here. Now, in these seven letters, there are some very critical differences. Some churches receive a lot of praise. Other churches, a lot more criticism. And for different things. And we're going to find it a very rich and interesting study as we go through it. But there are several striking similarities between these churches. Each memo, each letter, if you will, to the church begins and ends in the same way. And that's another reason why I think I'm on the right track here. Notice how they all begin. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. To the angel of the church at Smyrna and so forth. To the angel of the church of Sardis. To the angel of the church of Laodicea and Philadelphia and so forth. But then notice they all end the same way. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here you have the Lord Jesus Christ talking to an angel. The conversation is being overheard by the church and it's being brought to them via the Holy Spirit who is taking what they're hearing and driving it home to their life. That's what's happening. And those who are going to take heed and hear are those who are going to be greatly blessed. I don't know of anything that's perhaps emphasized as much in Scripture as the hearing of the Word of God, the hearing of what Jesus Christ says. The words that we started with this morning is that He wants us to truly stop, look, and listen. He wants us to stop in the midst of our busy life. He wants us to look attentively to what He is saying and what He is describing for us. And then He wants us to Listen in the sense that we put it into practice. That we respond to what is written. This is what he's asking us to do. As we enter the book of Revelation, as we enter the the two chapters dealing with the churches, he wants us to stop, look, and listen. 
carefully. As he addresses our problems to an angel who has much greater power than we do. We need to read and listen, and then we need to trust the Spirit of God to drive home that message to our heart. And we will be the better for it as a church and as individuals. Let's pray. Father, today, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the 